From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. On today's episode, we're going to explore the concept of social entrepreneurship. In the past 30 years or so, this field has emerged as an effective and widely adopted practice to address the world's social challenges using traditional business and entrepreneurial practices. And our Blue Sky guest today literally wrote the book about it. Teresa Shaheen is the inaugural Sheila and Ron Marcello Lecturer in Social Entrepreneurship at the Yale School of Management. She's also author of the book, Social Entrepreneurship, Building Impact, Step-by-Step. Dr. Shaheen's research focuses on developing tools to characterize and advance social and environmental determinants of health. And as you'll learn, she launched the first social entrepreneurship program in the context of public health at Harvard University. She was also responsible for launching the first venture philanthropy organization in her home country of Lebanon, providing tailored financing and critical management support to social enterprises serving marginalized populations. Before coming to Yale, while working at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Teresa won the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative's inaugural Elizabeth T. Weintz Humanitarian Research Award in 2016 and the Emerging Leader in Public Health Award in 2017. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Teresa Shaheen, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for initiating this institute, this Optimism Institute. It's so exciting. I am excited about it, and I appreciate you joining me today. I want to start with your background because I'm finding it fascinating from the research I've done. I know that you're originally from Lebanon, and when I looked at your bio, you have worked with the U.S. EPA. You've worked in Lebanon, Malaysia, China, Kazakhstan, Brazil. I know that there are more. I got jet lag just reading your bio. So could you tell me about you know your upbringing and how you came to this work and how you found yourself at Yale University ultimately? Oh my gosh, you might regret asking that question because it was a long and windy road. Um, but yeah, my first job ever was at the Ministry of Social Affairs in Lebanon where I come from. And then when I went to grad school, I had the opportunity of working with the U.S. EPA because I am a U.S. citizen. So I was basically born here during the Lebanese Civil War. I was born in the U.S. during the Lebanese okay. Civil War um, in the 70s. And I started school in Lebanon, but then because of the conflicts there, ended up transferring back to the U.S. So I did elementary school in Texas and then junior high school in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then high school and undergrad in Lebanon. And my first job was in Lebanon. So my my formative years were all in Lebanon, but I, I was born in the U.S. to Lebanese parents who later got the U.S. citizenship. And their whole goal in life initially had not been to immigrate to the U.S. It had been to live there until the war was over and then return. Like their whole life was about returning to Lebanon after the war. And and we did eventually. And they're still there. 
And I ended up making my way back here after many years of first for graduate school, then after many years of grassroots work in Lebanon, ended up coming back for this job at Yale. I can go into detail in any part, any one of the segments, but it would be long. I bet we're going to get to a lot of them. Because as I understand it, your first interest or or one of your first interests was in public health, social determinants of health and that sort of work. Mm -hmm. But now as I, as I research you and I've seen your second edition, I believe of your book on, you're now really focused on social entrepreneurship. So I'd love to know, you know, how you went from public health to social entrepreneurship, or if that even was that big a change, you know, how did that all happen? So yeah, I basically um, came back to the US at the age of 27 to do my doctorate degree in public health. And I basically had been working in public health in Lebanon, as I mentioned, at the Ministry of Social Affairs, and assumed that I would go back to doing similar work when I graduated. I had been working with the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA. And a couple of things happened during those five years of my doctorate program that that changed the pathway I had foreseen for my life. One of them was that my education in public health was largely about understanding problems and becoming an expert in the problem. And I felt frustrated because I saw myself more as learning about how to create solutions and becoming better equipped to find and implement solutions. And that's not what I was getting in my public health education. And that's one of the things that triggered me to do what I'm doing now is to try to change public health education and create new path career pathways for myself and others. And the other thing that happened was that when I graduated and went back to talk to the same people I had been working with before, assuming I would now be the director because I had this fancy degree, and they described to me the type of work I'd be doing if when I went back to Lebanon, I found myself really dissatisfied with the way that those programs were designed and those jobs were designed to improve public health and community well-being in Lebanon. For example, I had one conversation with one colleague about like, oh, this is great. We're so excited to have you back. We're going to send you to the this this one Palestinian refugee camp, you know, to, to build community and peace. And I was like, how are you going to send a freshly minted graduate from an Ivy League university in the U.S. into a Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon to build community and peace. Like, come on, that has to come from inside (laughs) the community. And so that was one of my first experiences with what I now call, with actually what my colleagues call lived experience. Like you, you can't, you don't send Harvard PhDs into a community to build community and peace. Right. It comes from lived experience leaders. Uh, and I'll say more about that later on and share more about the work of my colleagues. But I started looking for different pathways like, oh, no, my plan to go back and be a UN director doesn't seem like it might be the right path for me. Let me see what else I can do. And I realized that there, there weren't existing paths like academia, government, etc., that were the right fit for me. And I kind of had to create my own niche. And that's how I got into social entrepreneurship. And I ended up going back to help launch a venture philanthropy organization in Lebanon called Al-Fanar, which means lighthouse in Arabic. And it had already been started in Egypt with the vision to be regional and to work in all the Arab countries. And its theory of change was that 
civil society in the Arab region, nonprofits, social enterprises, et cetera, is our best shot at tackling social challenges when governments aren't doing their job and when the private sector is exploiting social and environmental capital that civil society organizations and social enterprises are actually working on those social outcomes. And so Al-Fanad invests in grassroots social enterprises that are showing results and helps them scale and sustain those results. So I, I helped launch that operation in Lebanon and led it for many years. And while doing that was also starting to teach social entrepreneurship at my alma mater, not as a faculty member, but more as a disgruntled customer of my own education. <laughs> like I spent five years here and no one uh. ever said the word social entrepreneurship to me until my last semester when I accidentally crossed the river to Harvard Business School and heard people talking about it there. And so I started the first course in social entrepreneurship at uh, the Harvard School of Public Health and was doing both, kind of doing teaching at Harvard, running Al Fanad in Lebanon, uh, writing the first edition of the textbook until it got to be too much and I had to pick one thing and it just seemed more in terms of growing and sustaining your impact, it seemed like the more sustainable choice would be to have to join the university as my day job and do grassroots work on my own time instead of the other way around. And that would also help me be part of the global conversation. And I was looking for someone to say, we love your work, come do it here. And that's what Yale did. So that's how I ended up here. <laughs> Teresa Shaheen took a classically optimistic path towards the work she's doing today. After an education that taught her about identifying problems, she was eager to work on ways to find solutions to them. Unable to find these opportunities in academia, she took it upon herself to help found a venture philanthropy organization in Lebanon. And then, while at Harvard School of Public Health, she learned that social entrepreneurship was being taught at their business school across the river and decided to start her own class. As we've said before on this podcast, optimists realize the world has plenty of problems, but they're motivated to create solutions. And Teresa has made doing just this her life's work. You mentioned having to go across the river to Harvard Business School to, to uh, learn about social entrepreneurship. I got my MBA there uh, in 1992, and I don't recall social entrepreneurship really being a thing back then. It was sort of, you're either going to build a business and maximize shareholder value uh, or join a business to do that, or you're going to be an entrepreneur. And the social stuff was nonprofits and government. So help us with social entrepreneurship, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with it. I pulled a quote out from your book uh, where you, you describe it very well, I think, which is social entrepreneurs play the role of change agents in the social sector. Um, and you say also say social entrepreneurs act to transform systems while social service providers act to reduce the negative effects of existing systems. Um, one of the reasons I like that transform system is it seems to me that they're, they're the ultimate optimist. <laughs> social yeah. entrepreneur has to have, there's a lot of leaps there. So could you talk to us about what is social entrepreneurship and, and why are you so excited and passionate about it that you've written uh, textbooks about it? It's basically, to put it in very few words, it's basically being entrepreneurial about creating social change. It's giving yourself permission to see the problem and to create a vision about how things could be different and also to see yourself as part of 
implementing that vision and making things different. And the definitions that I refer to in the textbook um, come from the work of Greg Dees, who wrote The Meaning of Social Entrepreneurship in 2001, I believe, and then Sally Osberg and Roger Martin, who created this distinction between social entrepreneurship and social service provision, which is helping people survive in the existing system as compared to changing the system. And they also made the distinction between social entrepreneurship and activism, which is asking others to change the system. So what makes the distinction they made is that social entrepreneurs take direct action to transform the system and that they, they recognize a stable but unjust equilibrium and then create a new vision and implement it to create a stable and more just equilibrium. And so that's what I see the mission of anyone who goes to public health school to be, is that the public health mission is the well-being of society. It is that everyone should have equal access to the conditions that make them, that would allow them to live healthy lives. And that's where the social and environmental drivers of health, the factors that really determine our health outcomes come in, like our education, our occupation, our income, our race, our gender. Those are the factors that we refer to when we say drivers of health, which are otherwise known as social and environmental determinants of health. And going back to your question about Harvard Business School, yeah, it was never really a thing to talk about social change in a business school context. Right. It was about making money. Right. But I think what changed right after you got your MBA is I think that entrepreneurship itself grew as a field around the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium, like with all the dot-com entrepreneurs and the internet, Silicon Valley growing I think a lot yeah. of those really successful entrepreneurs, like the first employees of PayPal, for example, one of the first employees of PayPal founded an organization in the early 2000s or co-founded it called Kiva, kiva.org, K-I-V-A, mm -hmm. which used that same technology to help people provide microloans to others living in poverty across the world. That was one of the first examples of social entrepreneurship. It was people saying, we have all these skills to practice entrepreneurship and we've built these successful, profitable business. Now let's turn our talents to solving social challenges. And that was the time when the Millennium Development Goals were released in the year 2000, when the global community got together and said, let's eliminate poverty, let's eliminate hunger, let's eliminate maternal child deaths, all the things that we don't believe have a place in the 21st century. We're gonna make a global agenda to tackle them by 2015. Now I graduated from undergrad in the year 2000 and so the Millennium Development Goals really informed my career and, and my life mission and path as they did for many people in my generation. And I think when we turn to the traditional trainings and disciplines and jobs that were out there in our grad school and our first jobs, we realized that many of them didn't provide a path to achieve the Millennium Development Goals by 2015. We really needed to accelerate progress. And I think right. having an entrepreneurial mindset and skill set to question the status quo and find new ways of doing things differently is a huge part of what's needed. And that's what gets me excited about social entrepreneurship. To 
Russell talks here about an encouraging trend we see from successful entrepreneurs. Many, after earning a big return from their startup, go on to launch highly impactful social ventures. The Kiva co-founder she mentioned, who's considered part of the so-called PayPal mafia, is Primal Shah. While some of his colleagues went on to launch businesses like YouTube, LinkedIn, Tesla, and Yelp, Shaw created Kiva and has raised over a billion dollars in loans to support over 2 million entrepreneurs from 80 countries. 75% of these loans went to women, and the repayment rate on these loans is over 95%. And regarding the Millennium Goals, while these were not reached by 2015, as Teresa points out, they were motivating to an entire generation of social entrepreneurs and were updated again in 2015, with goals stretching out now to 2030. They're worth checking out online if you're not familiar with them. Getting back to our conversation, I asked Teresa to talk a little bit about both entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and to explain why she teaches that social impact ventures don't have to be startups. You can be entrepreneurial with an existing institution, and this applies to people at all stages in their careers. Right. Um, I think people who are in advanced stages in their careers have access to so many resources if they're now powerful executives. I don't want them starting something new. You know, right. I had the CEO of a Fortune 50 company when I first came to Yale ask me for advice about starting a nonprofit. And I was like, <laughs> really? You're going to start a nonprofit? Like, is that what we need? Another nonprofit started by another millionaire? Like, if you can make one small change in your company as CEO, that could will likely have a much greater impact than any right. nonprofit you're going to start. So focus your attention there. And similarly, when young people who are really feeling so restless and fervent about creating social change ask me, like, how do I start something? How do I get an idea and start something new? I tell them, you don't have to, especially when I talk to youth in Lebanon. Like, if you have a job in a bank then that's great. You've achieved financial stability for yourself and for your family. And that's so hard to do, especially in Lebanon. I don't want you quitting your job to start something. If we all start something, we're going to be competing for very limited resources and none of us will succeed. But <laughs> right. what resources can you mobilize as an employee in that bank? How can you mobilize human capital and financial capital and make changes in your internal processes or your external relationships that would create positive social and environmental outcomes in your community like ask yourself that question and also i think that in addition to creating those changes within your jobs everyone has the opportunity to find social entrepreneurs and support them that circles right. back to what i mentioned earlier about lived experience leaders so my first year at yale i met a colleague abdaljeet sandu who lives in the uk and who was starting something called the lived experience movement in the UK, which hmm. is now part of the Center for Knowledge Equity. And her whole thing was there's learned experience, like what we have in these academic institutions, and there's lived experience. Like most foundations will hire an MBA to or some other master's person to design and implement a program that, that serves unhoused people or people with substance abuse disorder, or something that they've never experienced. Why don't you hire a formerly unhoused person or someone who has experienced substance abuse uh, substance abuse disorder and, and pay them to design and implement a program 
And so it's it's about valuing that lived experience and recognizing that change happens from within a community. So that really influenced me and put words to what I had been struggling with for many years in my work. And there's even a third area you describe, which is extrapreneurship. Right. And and you had a, you you have a I don't know if you came up with this, but you write in the book about collaborative jujitsu. Oh yeah. Describe that to us. Okay. I did not come up with collaborative jujitsu. So my students and I did come up with extrapreneurship as a way to jokingly refer to collective impact initiatives of various formats in class. Um, And then one of my students Googled it and other people had been using it. So that was reassuring. But the concept of extrapreneurship is that regardless of whether you start something new or whether you're innovating in an existing institution, you, you can, you will only be able to change so much in the world if you constrain yourself to the boundaries of the organization you're working with. You need to think and act like an extrapreneur and innovate beyond the boundaries of any one institution, whether it's your startup or an existing institution. And this refers to many different formats of working collectively. It can be public-private partnerships, collective change, uh, sorry, collective impact initiatives, distributed entities like Catalyst 2030. There's so many different ways to think beyond the boundaries of any one organization. And so both entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs need to think like extrapreneurs, think and act like extrapreneurs. It's interesting to hear a professor who writes and teaches about entrepreneurship make it clear that not everyone needs to jump out of what they're doing to start something new. But she does encourage us all to think about what we might be able to accomplish within the confines of our current work environment. And the entrepreneurial mindset strikes me as a uniquely optimistic one. Thinking about and addressing problems with a sense that there are, as Teresa says, no constraints. I next asked Teresa if she could point to a favorite example of social entrepreneurship at work here in the United States, a founder or an organization that she would advise her students to study or emulate? One of my favorite examples is The Daily Table. Um, and it, I think it's the first episode on my podcast, Impact and Innovation. And I speak with Doug Rao, the founder, who was the president of Trader Joe's, uh, the supermarket chain in the US. And I think he worked there for 30 years. I don't know if you've ever been to a Trader Joe's, but you know, every time I go there and try to buy an apple, the person at the cashier will be like, oh, there's a little bruise on your apple. Do you want to go back and get a new one? And I'm like, no, I picked this apple. Let me pay for it. (laughs) And, And Doug was frustrated by the amount of wasted food like that apple with the bruise, I think 30% of fresh produce in the US and globally are, are wasted, which is an environmental disaster and a social disaster because we have so many urban areas where people don't have access to fresh produce. And that that is the one of the leading causes of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and other chronic diseases in the US. And so he saw a solution that would help bring those two problems together. And his initial idea was that he would take that wasted food from supermarkets, it would be donated to him. And he, if he formed a nonprofit, it would be a tax write-off instead of throwing it away. And then he would sell it at low cost because he had zero procurement cost. 
in these urban areas. He got pushback that people just conceptually didn't get it. They thought he was selling people's leftovers and unwanted food and like other people's trash. Um, So he had to go back to the drawing board and iterate his business model. And he eventually found a viable model where he would go to people who sell to the wholesalers. Like at 9 a.m. after Costco and Walmart were done buying food from their sources, Daily Table would show up, buy whatever's less for almost nothing, but they were paying for it to get over that communications angle and misperception. And then they would have almost zero procurement cost and they would be able to keep their costs low to sell fresh fruits and vegetables in urban areas. And there were so many angles that he needed to adapt based on community preferences, values, and needs. Some of the things he learned include that poverty is not just lack of money, it's also lack of time and knowledge. There's poverty of time and knowledge. So the example he gives is that, you know, Harvard had a study where for 250 you could, you know, you could create a healthy meal to feed an entire family. But that had assumptions that someone has time to go find the ingredients, has knowledge and time and bandwidth to like soak those ingredients overnight, etc., prepare them. And he gives the story of a typical customer who's a single working mother holding more than one job to feed more than one child. And when that person arrives in their home at 6 p.m. every day, they need to have food on the table instantaneously. So it's going to be either a bucket of KFC or if there's something at a comparable price and convenience and taste at daily table, then that person might consider buying it. So he didn't just sell fresh produce. He hired a chef from that community to prepare to sell prepared foods at lowered price. And that also got around the challenge of having an ever-changing inventory because you don't know what you're going to be able to buy each morning. So he just had to iterate on so many levels, but he has made it work. And he, um, I think, has opened his third branch so far. And again, his goal is different from what it would be in commercial entrepreneurship. He's not looking to set up barriers to entry, you know, or have an unfair advantage. He wants people to copy this model. He doesn't, he's not hoping to scale to every city in America. He's hoping to demonstrate a proof of concept and to find new ways of leveraging resources and change the supply chains. And he also recognizes that it's, there are food policies that have created the food apartheid that we experience in these urban settings and that that level of policy change and systems change is also needed. So each person is innovating at a different level and and recognizing that innovation is needed really across sectors to to create the long-lasting changes that we need. I love the story of Doug Rao. I had the privilege of meeting Doug about 15 years ago at a Conscious Capitalism conference. He was at the time preparing to start an academic fellowship where he was already planning to develop the idea that would later become the Daily Table. Doug is another classic entrepreneurial optimist. First, he sees a problem, food waste and food deserts coexisting. But rather than simply cursing the problem, he works on a solution. As he does so, he keeps running into roadblocks, but instead of giving up, he adapts, iterates, and keeps at it. Now that his model is working, he's encouraging others to copy it. One of the great things about a social entrepreneur like Doug is they're usually not out to corner the market on whatever they're creating. 
they more want to fix a societal problem. And in this case, to scale the impact of these stores, Doug would love to see other entrepreneurs jump in and replicate what he's doing in other parts of the country. Returning to my conversation with Teresa Shaheen, I asked for her thoughts on the practice of for-profit companies not necessarily engaging in social impact activities on their own, but instead carving out a percentage of profits to give away philanthropically. I think there's room for everyone. I And I, I don't like, I try to avoid as much as possible saying like, oh, that doesn't count. You know, like I think it's a spectrum. Right. And I would like to include socially responsible businesses in that spectrum. I think it's a start and it's really cool when you carve out part of your revenue to donate to a specific cause. It can be really impactful to do that. I think what's also really impactful is when you ask yourself, like in making my money, in delivering whatever value I'm delivering to my customers and to the world, what role can my internal operations play in creating positive social and environmental outcomes? It could be the parental leave and the healthcare you're providing your employees. It could be your carbon emissions. It could be your supply chain. It could be your products. Like there's so many ways that you can contribute towards the sustainable development goals in addition to having a budget to contribute to causes. So I definitely won't diss people who, you know, give a percent of their profit to a cause. I think that's amazing. And and then I think if you're that amazing, then I challenge (laughs) you to do something in in your, that's in line with your, um, you know, economic growth that also will result in you creating that social and environmental um, outcomes yourself. And we've talked about your own background, your own career, and some of these other entities that you've studied and have written about. I'd love to talk about your students. What are you seeing in in younger people today that makes you optimistic about the future and what they're bringing to the classroom and, and leaving your classroom with? I love that my students question everything, <laughs> including me. You know, like I... I'm going to give you an example that will probably annoy most listeners, but I think you have to annoy people when you create change, okay? And change can be anything. (laughs) So an an example that a lot of my students really work on diversity and inclusion. I mentor entrepreneurs and I, I keep getting entrepreneurs that are starting companies that work on that in one way or the other. And when I first started teaching here, I would say you guys a lot because most people do, especially people my age. And, and I'd say you guys, like every other word, what do you guys think, et cetera. And then one of my students wrote me this really kind email where she was like, I noticed you say you guys a lot. And I know you just moved to the U.S. from Lebanon. And I, I know that you also work on women's socioeconomic empowerment. So I thought that you might want to know that, like, you're using a gendered term. And here on campus, that, that has been a conversation. And I was like, wow, like, you really have, there's so much room for self-awareness and self-observation. And many of my colleagues would get really annoyed by that and not respond to it. But actually, I thought like this is an invitation to question everything and to find ways to create a more inclusive classroom and to think about ways in which the social problems that I care about, like women's socioeconomic empowerment, start with the language you use in the classroom. And so there's so many examples where like I'd share with them an example mission statement from an article I read in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And they'd be like, "Mm, that mission statement is problematic and we're gonna tell you why. (laughs) So like we question everything. And 
that's what gives me hope for the future. What makes me worried is that they'll go out there and take their first job that they need to take in order to pay their bills that they, their loans that they needed to pay to get this degree. And then they'll have to learn how to survive in this world. And they'll just, they'll have to learn how this world works. And then they'll lose that, that questioning and wanting things to be different. And I don't want it to be just the few students that go out there and start those DEI companies. I want it to be everyone, even people who go out there and join the consulting companies and the funds and the finance companies who find ways to do things differently. So what gives me optimism is the way they question everything and keep you on your toes <laughs> all the time. Um, yep. and, and I hope that they continue like to give me stories like that, that most people would find annoying, but that I find right. refreshing and challenging. And I think that, you know, Doug Rao, going back to that example, he once told me, be the sand that creates the pearl, you know, like you have to irritate an existing surface in order to change it and create something beautiful. And maybe I'm misquoting him. You can ask him when he comes on the podcast. Yes, yes. (laughs) But that's, that's, I hope my students continue to irritate my generation and yep. demand that they do things differently. Well, and I, I, I like the story about you guys because I like the way that student approached it for a couple of reasons. One is she gave you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So she, I, I'm a big believer in, in assume good intentions. You yeah. weren't, you're, you know, not some sexist prof- professor who mm-hmm. came in and, right? You're just honest mistake. I, I say you guys too much. Still, and she had she addressed it to you. She didn't send it to the school paper or try to you yeah. know, make you right. I mean, that's a great way to handle it. I I've always I lived in Atlanta for a while in, in, in the South. Y'all is great because y'all just it's singular, it's plural. It's everyone male, it's started saying every, y'all even if they're not Southern. Oh, y'all is is just covers everything. Those are great examples, and and it it is interesting. I think where you have situations where folks have all the right intentions and want to do all these things, and then as you said, get out of school with student debt, and then they're doing jobs they might not want to do. But I think you said something important, which is within those places you can still make a huge change. Like you said, you know, you're a leader in an organization, and you change the parental leave policy. That has a yeah. huge impact. And by yeah. the way, not just on your own employees, but people in your sector who hear about it, who are fighting for the same employees and they don't want to work for them because they don't have the same policies. I feel like sometimes people, and I'd love to know your reaction, they draw this huge line between, you know, for-profit capitalist and, you know, socially conscious entrepreneur or, you know, nonprofit leader. And it's not that big and bright a line, or I don't think it should be. I don't think it should be either. And one of the things that I've enjoyed seeing about the alumni at Yale School of Management is that many of them do not self-identify as social entrepreneurs. Right. But when they describe their businesses, you know, for example, one person who um, makes semiconductors or something. Yeah. He makes some physical object. Right. But that's not really his mission in life. Like, of course he wants to make as much money as he can. But when he was describing his work to me, what he was really proud of was the example I gave you was like how he creates an environment where the people who work for him 
can have access to the best health and to time to take care of their loved ones and to serve the community and right. how that the relationship between the company he's building and his community and how business is and can and, sh and should be and must be a force for good. Yep. I have one of the guest speakers who comes to my class who I co-authored an article with on Yale Insights. His name is Rod Bremby. He used to be the director of the Department of Social Services in the state of Connecticut and now works at Salesforce. And he quoted the CEO of Salesforce as saying, um, the business of business is doing good. Another guest speaker uh, I have is from Patagonia, he, Vincent Stanley. He's actually the director of philosophy at Patagonia. And he there's an interview box with him in the second edition of the book. You know, Patagonia makes stuff, like it makes jackets and sweaters and everything, but they they see their mission at helping to create a healthier environment. Um, so I do think that all the social enterprises in the world, their impact won't amount to a drop in the bucket compared to if existing businesses that don't identify as social enterprises have a mission that's in line with their economic growth is to also help create social and environmental growth. And back to your students, my sense is too, especially younger people, they don't want to work someplace that doesn't have a purpose of some sort that they can feel good that's about. That's absolutely true. And that's another way that businesses are competing for, for, for employees and for investors. Um, absolutely. It's a huge generational change, you know, from yeah. my parents' generation to your students' generation. That's probably at least two generations, but that's, those are, those are big changes as folks head out into the workplace. I was glad to hear Teresa talk about companies like Patagonia and Salesforce, who make it an integral part of their mission to do good in the world. On this podcast, we've also profiled leaders of for-profit companies like Life is Good and The Motley Fool, who are doing the same. And as consumers, employees, and investors continue to reward companies with a positive pro-social mission, these trends will only continue. And that's something to be optimistic about. As we prepared to wrap up, I wanted to bring Teresa back to public health, where she started her career, and I asked her if there are examples that give her hope and optimism for improvements in this very challenging sector of our society. There are, and, it, and also it might be another uh, opportunity for me to share another example from the U.S. So the first example is someone who used their professional experience to reimagine the supply chain in grocery stores. And the second example is someone who used their lived experience to think about how they can change the way that health is talked about and invested in in the U.S. So there is an organization called the Health Initiative that is an extrapreneurship initiative for sure, because it's trying to change the way existing stakeholders work together in the health system. And they conducted focus groups with people across America, across wealth, racial, political, and other divides, and generated evidence that even though people disagree about health care, Everybody agrees about health and everybody agrees that we need to invest in the things that make us healthy, not just hospitals and healthcare services, but the drivers of health. And they piloted 
new programs with states that allow health providers to ask about drivers of health because they saw that, you know, a physician won't ask that the patient that constantly shows up in the emergency room and they know that that patient lives in a mold infested apartment, won't ask them about that apartment or about when was the last time you had a hot meal because there's nothing they can do about it. The same people who worked in Health Leads, an organization that was found, that was founded, I think about 25 years ago, to help connect those physicians and other healthcare providers with social services, so that they could ask those questions and connect uh, patients with what they needed for drivers of health. Now started the health initiative to change the conversation around and investment in health. And um, there are so many other examples about people working on drivers of health, on trying to shift to value-based care instead of fee-for-service. And so I do think that there's hope. And my next research study that I just launched is going to be about what would it take to reach a critical mass where these entrepreneurship and extra ownership initiatives become more than 1% of how health is achieved in this country uh, what would it take to actually change, quote unquote, the system, even though there's not one system, there's so many different systems, but, to, you know, to make a dent in the status quo. No, I, it's it's amazing when you look at all the money that's spent on, quote unquote, healthcare in the United States and how much of it, such a fraction of that amount put on prevention would change so much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny because you were talking about uh, food earlier, and I, I've been interested in the sort of food as medicine movement and and the concept of, I've seen people are experimenting with what they call pharmacies, but spelled with an F, not a PH. And oh, wow. So that, yeah. And That's so you- I've heard of this. Yeah. And, and the idea would be, and it, you know, there's issues with insurance, and but you know, a physician can prescribe drugs, but in a lot of cases, what the person really needs is healthier. It's a healthier diet. And why shouldn't there be a way to write some sort of, you know, maybe there's reimbursement for it, a prescription for better food, and maybe you work with one of these delivery services so that, back to your point about not everyone lives near a good, healthy grocery store and it's not affordable. But what if it showed up on your door with the next five days' ingredients or meals? You know, I mean, you can you can prescribe statins and other drugs, or you can eat a healthier diet, or both. But there's also um, there's also a green space and exercise and getting outdoors. So there are also initiatives called Nature RX. There you go. Where patients are prescribed time, like go to you know the closest park. <laughs> but then that also speaks to the importance of parks and having parks in, in different neighborhoods and having potentially like social impact bonds or innovative ways of financing more green space, where if Medicaid is saving money by having people spend time outdoors and be active, then they could potentially co-invest in green space in certain neighborhoods that don't have any. So I think there's a lot of hope and a lot of potential. And I do think it's very closely tied to political will. But again, hopefully if there are enough extrapreneurs and there are enough irritants, yes, then maybe that will happen. And I, I pulled up the book and I found the quote from Doug Rao in the case study. Oh, great. I, I did get it right. He said, be the irritant, <laughs> the sand and the oyster that makes the pearl. That's a great way to wrap up, Teresa. You have been a delight. 
Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you and I wish you, you so much, continued Jim. great success. Thank you for reminding us to be optimistic and to be hopeful. Well, thank you. I, I'm a big believer that, you know, that it's not, some people think that optimism is this thing where you just can sit back and everything's going to get better. I actually think it's, it, true optimists are the ones who realize that things could get better and they have something to do about it. And it's the people who get so down and, and doomed uh, by what they see online and see in the news that they feel like there's, ah, what's the point? There's nothing I can do about it. So I, I hope to spread the word that by being optimistic, you can be a social entrepreneur. You can get out and make these connections and make the world better. And, and I'm so glad that you're teaching all these bright young people to get out and do this kind of work. So thanks for all that you're doing. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for starting the podcast and for inviting me to be on it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. you enjoyed this blue sky episode with Teresa Shaheen and that in addition to helping you feel more optimistic about our future specifically in the field of entrepreneurship and public health that you might also be inspired to be the sand that creates the pearl to stay active and involved and as Gandhi is often credited with saying to be the change you want to see in the world before you go we'd appreciate it if you can take a minute to give us a rating or review and let us know how we're doing And if you like this content, consider subscribing to the Blue Sky Podcast and following the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.